0: Welcome to Seminary Dropout, interviews with leading theologians, biblical scholars, leaders, and thinkers, asking questions and having conversations that help us better understand God and ourselves. For believers and doubters alike, let's go. My guest today is Dr. Dale Allison. Dale, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Happy to be here, Shane.
0: Well, for those who don't know, uh, why don't you just tell a little bit about yourself, You're, uh, you know, where you are in life, and your profession, and all that good stuff.
1: Well, I teach at Princeton Theological Seminary, and I am in the Biblical Studies Department. I focus on the New Testament and early Christianity. And within that umbrella, I suppose I focus mostly on the historical Jesus and the Gospels, Including especially the Gospel of of Matthew. But I'm also very interested in Second Temple Judaism and have actually written commentaries on a couple of Second Temple Jewish texts. Uh, Beyond the field of biblical studies, there are other things I do too, just for fun. So once in a while, between heavy academic books, I'll write about something else. So a number of years ago, I wrote a book on George Harrison. I wrote a book on the the afterlife and what might lie beyond, and our reasons for thinking this or that. My most recent book was actually on religious experience in the modern world, which is sort of my own um, version, if if I if I'm so bold, my own uh, version of William James's variety of religious experience, updated uh, for the contemporary world. So. Uh, quite a few things, but most people think of me as doing Jesus, I suppose, and the gospel of Matthew, because I've written most, uh, most, uh, book, most of the book that I've published have been on those two subjects, I suppose. You're, yeah, you're pretty prolific.
0: George Harrison, I did not know about that one. That's pretty cool. Uh,
1: yeah, I decided I just take a break from academics for a year and I, uh, got to study Hinduism or go back and brush up on my Hinduism. And then I just played George all day long while I was writing every day uh, for a year. And it was uh, it was a really nice, lovely break. I've always been a George fan. I was a George fan from the beginning, the very beginning, I don't know why. And he remained my favorite Beagle. So a publisher once asked me after he learned about my interest in George, hey, would you like to write a book on George? I said, why not?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, this is not, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm an elder millennial, so this isn't my generation, but I think anybody who's got an appreciation for music has to have an appreciation for the Beatles on some level. But you're you're right. I mean, you get get Paul, you know, everybody loves Paul. Uh, You know, some uh, people like Ringo, and some people like to hate on Ringo. (laughs) You know, but George Harrison, you don't hear about very much. And he, is he,
1: is he still around? No, no, no. He died in 2001. Okay. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he smoked too much and smoked himself into a, an early grave. Uh, but you know, he was the most, if you want religious of the Beatles and well, I'm just a religious person, always been interested in religion. And so that was part of the attraction, uh, later on. You know, Paul doesn't do much theology, and John's John Lennon did a little theology, but it was mostly unconsidered, I think, uh, and George was the most reflective of all four Beatles in my judgment. That's most, fascinating. Mo- the most interesting intellectually, if you will, because he belonged to a religious tradition and tried to think about it. I'm okay. I'm going to resist
0: my... Urge to go down that rabbit hole further because there is so much <laughs> okay. I want to I want to talk to you about. Maybe we'll do another one on George Harrison. So, you know, Dale, uh, for a lot of people like me, especially my generation, we grew up who grew up in Christian homes, evangelical, uh, you know, institutions. I grew up reading, like even in junior high and high school, reading books on apologetics that were in the Christian bookstore at the time and uh, looking back i don't know quite how to feel about those because at the time they were reassuring they we, i liked them it gave me a reason to believe outside of some kind of naive faith
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: but as i got older i looked back at those and i thought i think i feel like they were holding something back i feel like there's some there's some evidence that was probably left out there's some things were cherry picked and i i feel that i think because the way that they explained it was you almost didn't need faith like they were giving you a, a certainty and if mm-hmm. if the evidence led to the kind of certainty they claimed it did there would be no one in higher education and biblical studies who was not a <laughs> christian you know what i mean and uh-huh. And so, as I've gotten older, my faith has gotten mature, I've sought out, okay, what what really is the evidence? The people in the Ivy League and wherever, like, what are they looking at that I haven't seen? And this is kind of how I stumbled on to your book. And I really, I felt a real kinship, especially when I was reading, um your book on uh, Jesus and the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the title, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Probably yeah. was that, would you say it's probably your most successful book? Most well-read oh, I book. I have
1: no idea how to judge that. It sold fairly well. It's been reprinted. It was reprinted. Uh, not long after it was published, it became an audiobook. So I guess it, you know, for an academic book, it's done pretty well. It's yeah. not a bestseller, you know,
0: yeah it's not in bart airman's league but no well and yeah and nothing <laughs> uh nothing super good is going to be a bestseller. that's that was a, that's a gross over exaggeration but uh yeah so I, I i was reading that and one of the things you know in the intro you you said something like you can find me in church on easter morning but you are approaching this as a historian and i think I think you actually say that the book aims to explore the historical aspects of Jesus's resurrection without taking a definitive position on whether it happened or not. And I think when I was reading that, I was thinking, I think this is exactly what I've been looking for. Go ahead. You look like you want to say something that. Yeah. Sorry.
1: Well, look, so maybe maybe it helps to plug this into my story. So I grew up as a liberal Protestant. A liberal Presbyterian, and then in a high school, I had this uh, mystical experience, which uh, made me want to talk to people about God in ways I had not before. And so I ended up for a, sh- a brief time in an evangelical church, and I was a smart little kid. And one of the things I did was, was read this evangelical apologetical literature, and part of the problem for me is that it just didn't convince me. I kept wo- I came away thinking. Boy, I wish you had convinced me of this, but I, you know, I just don't know uh, what to think. I remember reading uh, what is one of the most sophisticated uh, apologists in modern times. So this was a man named Wolfhard Pannenberg, who was a German theologian. And in his Christology, he claimed to show that Jesus rose from the dead. And I remember reading his section of this book that was on the resurrection. And when I finished it, I actually put it down and walked around the room and said, what did this guy just do? Did he actually do what he claims he did? And I wasn't sure of this, but that was my response, uh, to almost all apologetics. Did this person really do what he or she claimed to, to, to do? And so I ended up in the long run, coming away disappointed from popular apologetical works and decided that the only way to figure things out was to look at things for myself. And I had a choice in college. Should I become a philosopher, PhD in philosophy, or should I pursue religious studies? I don't know why I picked religious studies and ended up eventually in Bible. But it was in part because I was not persuaded by... What anybody was saying about much, everybody seemed to be shallow about a lot of things. And so the option was, the only option was, I guess I'm going to have to find out for myself. And, and here you and, are. And having, and having worked through evidence on a lot of things, I'm still not sure what to think. I, look, I find the world incredibly complex. Everything about the world is difficult, and that includes thinking. It includes every area of life. So the Bible isn't somehow easy and different than everything else. It's difficult. Theology is difficult. There, there are no safe intellectual harbors. Everything is up for grabs. Can I ask,
0: can I jump in and ask kind of a, a question out of left field maybe? But uh, you do call yourself a Christian. Uh, you wrote and we should talk about this a little bit, but your last book was called Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience uh-huh. in a Secular Age, where you kind of detail these kind of, you know, some people will call miraculous happenings and and things like that. Uh, do you have colleagues when you're, you're at Princeton or I don't know, you go to SPL or whatever, if you talk to other uh, people like, do you have people looking at you as, with suspicion because you are a. Confessional Christian.
1: Uh, sure. That's that's a problem. Um, I should say it's a problem for them. Is a pro- not a problem for me. Uh, in part because I recognize that I could be wrong about everything. I don't know what the psychology of this is, but I have no trouble living with uncertainty. I have no problem thinking I might be wrong about most things, or even the things that are most important. So all I can do is place my best bet and, and do what I can. And I realize that there are lots and lots of very smart, well-informed people who disagree with me and think I'm naive about things or that I don't understand neuroscience or I haven't taken into account fully modern psychology and uh, on and on it, it goes. Um, so of course I think I'm right about things. How can, you know, everybody, but, but then everybody does so that's a pretty worthless place to be. So <laughs> I, I think eventually you just have to be Socrates and say you don't know anything and you do your best and um, maybe hope for the best. But, I, you know, I, I, I spent my whole life in history and it's very fragile. Uh, if you're talking about Jesus, early Christians, or you're talking about the, the origin of resurrection belief, we just have a handful of sources, Right. Um, uh, and I just think it's way more difficult than a lot, a lot of people think.
0: Well, that gives me a really good jumping off point to talk about your book on the resurrection. And I do want to talk about encountering mysteries. So let's save that for a little bit. But okay. I, I like that you said that because when I step back, I, the question that comes to mind is how do you even start to, Investigate whether an event that happened 2,000 years ago actually happened or not.
1: Yeah, well, it's really, really different. And one of my intellectual heroes is Origen. And Origen, despite being a Christian theologian and a sort of apologist, was upfront. And he said, One of the hardest things is to show that something has happened, even if it did happen. And so if you put the resurrection to aside for a bit, just think of something else. So there's that story in Mark five where Jesus runs into this possessed man and then the pigs run off the cliff. Right. OK. Now, maybe that happened. But how can you show that it happened? All you have is one text, really one text. And then someone who's copying that text, Matthew's copying Mark there. I at least I think so. In one text, it's probably circa 40 years uh, after this event. You can't confirm it with anything, and it's an exceedingly odd story. So what do you do with it? So one of the things I'm known for is arguing that when you work with Jesus or try to reconstruct Jesus— The safest place is to look at repeating patterns and themes because it's really hard to authenticate any single saying or single event. And the pigs going off the cliff uh, is one such event. Now, it's conceivable that in the future, archaeologists might find a pile of pig bones, you know, below a cliff, and they might say, okay, here you go, but, you know, you could respond and say, well, there was a pile of pig bones there and someone created this story to explain why the, you know, the pigs were at the bottom of the cliff, you know, it, it, it's endless. So all you have are, our bets and you can do your best. And it, but it's really hard with individual sayings or individual events. Now, sometimes you can do this. I think the evidence for Jesus having been crucified is overwhelming. And I'm not a Jesus mythicist. Uh, but unfortunately, most of the things in the Gospels aren't like that. You know, you can't find them in Josephus, and you can't find most of the stuff in, in Paul, for example. You, you just have, have the Gospels. Yeah, And the writers know each other or are familiar, I think, with the uh, text that came before them. Matthew, I think, knows Mark. I think John probably has at least heard all three synoptics before he writes. So you you don't have independent witnesses sequestered by a judge, right? And they never talk to each other and and, and so on. Anyway, the point is just to agree with you and to agree with Origin that this is a really hard business.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think – to your point i think so many moderns we have a hard time with the gospels because we are used to modern journalistic historicity when we when we <laughs> read things yep. and that's the and we don't understand the literary forms of the day the common the ways that people wrote about things back then so i think that that's hard for us we've got to put on you know first century mindsets and that's really difficult
1: Yeah, so way back when, somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be a first century Jew. And what I meant by that was I wanted to understand Jesus and the early Christians. And the only way to do that was to immerse myself in those old Jewish sources, which I've I've tried to do. Uh, But you're you're right. Their conventions, their presuppositions aren't ours. Uh, They're just, just not. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, let, let's jump into some stuff. What? So, I've kind of, uh, you know, the kind of like I don't know if I want to say it, the stream I'm in right now. One of the things that uh, often would be talked about, say at a at a Easter service, would be the fact that that in Mark, uh, Mary finds Jesus first, and mm-hmm. And that in that time, the the testimony of a woman didn't really count for much. And so this could, could be seen as some evidence that if you're going to make up a narrative, you don't make up a narrative where a woman is the first one to encounter the risen Jesus. Is there any credence to that idea?
1: So it, this is like everything else. Once you examine it, it turns out to be very difficult. So there are texts which show, for example, uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls where a woman can testify against her husband, right? And this is in a formal legal setting. Josephus, on the other hand, says a woman's testimony doesn't amount to much. On the other hand, the early Christians uh, are not just men. There are lots of women. There are female missionaries. Uh, There are female leaders. Just look at Paul's letters. So it's not that it's an exclusively male movement where everybody thinks like Josephus does who can be very uh, prejudicial against women. Now, I do think it is the case that there is a sort of patriarchal, patriarchal or androcentric bias in the Gospels. I think I see it with all four writers. And I do think it's not likely that they would have created a story completely out of nothing in which uh, Mary is the one or Mary plus someone else discovers the two. I think there's something to that argument, but it's not a knockdown proof. It's not easily deployed without talking about all the uh, attendant themes and problems with it. You can't just make a statement, for example, about women's status in Judaism uh, because there were different views, obviously. And then women themselves are going to have different views about women. And there are women who are active in the early church. So so in, in my most recent book on the resurrection called The Resurrection of Jesus, I do have a very long chapter on the empty tomb where I look at this argument, but it's probably 10 pages long. And when I come to a conclusion, it's tentative. Yeah, this is there's some weight to this, but you know that's all you could do in my in my judgment. So, uh, yeah, there's something here, but it's more difficult. You have to be more cautious than people typically are when they deploy this argument.
0: But I think your your summary there was is it essentially? Am I hearing this right that if you were to concoct a story? from scratch that's to convince people of a narrative that's probably not the best way to go
1: yeah so okay i will say yes to that and then say but then i've written a lot which qualifies and yeah modifies that but okay at the end of the day yes there's something to that i think
0: yeah well and i mean Again, part of what drew me to your work was your humble approach. Like how do you and I think the answer to my question, you know, how do you how do you decide something happened two thousand years ago is humbly, <laughs> right? <laughs> Modestly.
1: Yeah, but but there's um there's an issue here. So Christianity is controversial. It's always been controversial, so it's always had its opponents, people are always attacking it. And so you understand the apological apologetical impulse, which is Okay, you, you think we're wrong. I'm going to prove that we're right. I just think that proving that we're right is way more complex than uh, any book I've ever read on this subject. How about that? Well, okay. So I was going to
0: kind of save this to the end of the wrap-up, but I think we're, we're diving in too heavily. And it gets into, in your book, doesn't, The Resurrection of Jesus, your book, doesn't dive into much theologically, but if you're talking about the resurrection, oh. you can't help, but, butt up to a little bit of theology and, yeah, uh-huh. and it's got me thinking about just the nature of faith. And I am a big proponent that, uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. And I don't need, uh, I don't need, historical certainty that the resurrection happened. And that's good because we can't get it. We can't get it. And I don't I don't mean that I don't I do believe that it happened. Uh I affirm it. But by a lot of Christian apologists, I feel like the idea is that our brain is gonna get us ninety-nine point five percent there and then throw a little faith on top and there you go, it's a hundred percent and you're certain and i i don't need that i need i think what i need is to be able to say is it crazy for me to believe in the resurrection like am i did i have to check my brain in to believe in the resurrection and if the answer is no then that's good i'm i'm okay with that i can still i can affirm the resurrection uh-huh. and say cuz i think there's two I, Dale, i found in my life that among Christians, there's there's two ditches, one on either side, and one is one says, "Yeah, we can get absolute certainty about this," and it's it's that you know your the the brain will get you ninety nine point five percent there, you barely need to have any faith, right? And I found that that is erroneous. Now the other side says, um, "You just got to believe, like forget whatever the evidence is, you just got to believe," and I can't intellectually do that. And it makes no sense to me why the God who gave me a brain would want me to turn it off to believe in him.
1: So I I agree completely with that. And I would say that it's not a question of what we should or should not do theologically. At least speaking of myself, I am full of doubt. I have questions. I'm a modern person. I was given a secular education. I know about the history of religions. I know about other religions. I have really smart friends who are reductionistic materialists. So how can I be confident with the world I live in and the education I've been given? Uh, All I can do is do my best and recognize that this is just really hard stuff. Right? Uh, But I don't... I, I think that the people it's okay. Let me, let me put it this way. I find it hard to think that people who say, all you have to have is faith. um, Have read Kant or Hume. Uh, Now Kierkegaard had, and he he was into faith, but I'm just not that person. I am just not. I just have so many questions. It's like, I was handed this faith, and then when I took it out to the world, when I took it out to the post-enlightenment world, when I took it out to my secular world, I was simply bombarded by a million questions. And I'm still trying to answer those questions and figure it out. And it's sort of, this is how the process sort of works in my own mind. I'm handed all these beliefs, and then I spend my my life looking at them and say, I don't believe that one anymore. I can still believe this one. I don't know what to make of that one, right? So I'm always sorting through what I was handed. And I think that's what we do with everything. Uh, that, that's part of our education. We go through life and we find out what we were taught correctly or what we were taught incorrectly. I was taught all sorts of things about history that were one-sided or biased or turned out to be false and so on. You just go through and you correct. Uh, I, I don't know how you do anything else with your religious tradition and it would be amazing wouldn't it that I just happened to be born into the right tradition that's 100 percent true that's just bizarre it's also the case that most people historically have the religious beliefs they do for the same reason that they have the political beliefs they do which is parental affiliation Yeah, that's just a fact. It's an overwhelming fact. It must mean something.
0: Yeah, that's right. I I find that uh, I have a lot of these people in my life who they grew up, uh, they grew up in maybe a small town or rural area. And so, yeah, they they adopted the political affiliations of their parents. Uh, Uh Then as an adult, they moved to the big city. And then they just adopt the political affiliations of the big city. I'm like, you're doing both the same thing here. Like you didn't, uh-huh. there's a lot of searching there, but I think, you know, back to this, I think that one of the convictions I have is it's, it can't be true just because we want it to be. And so then we get to say, well, then let's, let's look at the evidence and I shouldn't be afraid to look at the evidence, whatever, whatever that is we should be able to look at that truth and then then let's make a decision. You know, one thing that i've i've thought about that makes this kind of thing hard is you know, in science, you kind of get to start you kind of get to go backwards and otherwise in science you get to go, hey, the the sky appears blue to our eyes. Why is that? And so, but with for instance with the resurrection, You don't get to go, the resurrection absolutely happened. Let's start backwards from that. You have to start at the beginning and say, okay, where's the evidence? And the evidence gets to lead us at whatever the truth is.
1: Well, so that's how I work. I understand people who live within, let's say, uh, a traditional theological tradition like Roman Catholicism where they do exactly what you said. But that's not my experience. My experience was I was handed a bunch of religious beliefs And I came to the conclusion that some of them were wrong, which means that they are up for grab and examination, right? So it hasn't been the case that as I went through life, nothing challenged me, nothing changed my opinion to any significant extent. But my opinions have been changed to a significant extent. So yeah, that's just a fact. Well, and I don't have to live with it. I I don't know about. For you,
0: but for me, when I have changed my mind about things, I often discover a more beautiful God. If I can be real theological, you know. Okay. So, so like I was handed a belief of like eternal conscious torment and started to really look at that. Look at the testimony of the scripture and, and came to a different mm-hmm. belief on that. I, I like this God better. And I don't think, and I don't think that I just, I don't think I was biased. I don't think I just, you know, made a different decision and then justified it. Although I guess we're all biased in, in some ways, but to me, the searching has been really rewarding in that regard. And, and I get that there are some people for whom that searching has been painful. They've, they've found the truth Mm -hmm. in a really painful way for, for whatever reason, because they had their worldview is upended and that can be uncomfortable at some times.
1: Yeah. Well, so I, I agree with you. Part of my own story is I was raised as a liberal Presbyterian and nobody was telling me you have to believe this or you have to believe that. Maybe it was too lax, too laissez-faire, whatever. But uh, I never was part of a system where I felt afraid if I stepped out. Nobody was yeah. telling me if you ask that question, you'll go to hell. Nobody yeah, yeah. said that.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So uh, so my wife did grow up as a very conservative Baptist, and she has a very different experience than I do. It's been much, much harder for her to become liberal about some things than, than me. Heck, I started out liberal about some things, right? Nobody actually told me what I should believe about the Bible in my liberal Presbyterian church. They read it. And they told us we should read it. They preached sermons. But they didn't tell us that it was infallible, inerrant. They didn't give us specific doctrines about it. And so I guess I have felt free just to, to think about it myself. But I, I know from talking to my wife, uh, it was very different for her.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, I still have I still have convictions about the nature of the authority of the Bible, but I still have a lot of freedom there. Like, like I still, Uh that doesn't mean. So for instance, well, and this will, this will relate to something else about the resurrection stuff to me, to me, Christianity hinges all on the resurrection. And if if the resurrection happened, then that means all manner of things are possible and beautiful and can be made new. Mm-hmm. If the resurrection didn't happen. And I mean, in a historical sense and with all due respect to people who find a way that the Marcus Borgs of the world who would call themselves Christians, but don't affirm the historical resurrection. Uh, it doesn't make much sense to me. It kind of, I kind of, I lose it all if, if the resurrection wasn't true. Um. Now I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about. Well, if I don't know where you're going, I don't know how to respond. No, no.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um. No, I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm not going to get it back. But, uh, but I think, but one of the point, what the original thing I wanted to say about that was, um, oh, I know what I was going to say. If the resurrection's true, then it's okay to me. If, for instance. The story about, you know, Jesus walking along and picking up a fish and it pulls a coin out of his mouth. Um, (laughs) You know, it's all right if if that's not historically true is if the resurrection's true, then the other thing cannot be true. And that's not really a huge deal to me. You know what I mean? And so and I can still have some kind of uh, theology of the authority of Scripture and hold to those things at the same time.
1: So this gets into very difficult areas that I don't think we want to enter with the time (laughs) we have left. But I can say this. I sometimes think of my high school algebra class, and the teacher told us that when we found errors in the textbook, we should let the teacher know. And uh, he would uh, send them in to the author or the publisher. and In the next edition, they'd, they'd clean it up, right? And he'd been doing this for years. And every year, his students would come up with more errors or more mistakes. Well, from one point of view, that's instructive to me. We still learned algebra. And the students who learned from edition one, which had even more mistakes than my edition did, right? So you can learn all sorts of things, even if your text is infallible, even if it's not in error, even if it needs to be corrected. Now, you know, that's a very rough analogy, but it occasionally uh, occurs to me that, yeah, you, get, you don't need an infallible book in order to learn math, right? Mm-hmm. So why do I need an infallible book to learn religion or to learn Christianity, yeah. Uh, but also, I would say that I know of no creed which says, ah, you must believe in Matthew 17 and the story of the coin and Peter and the fish. Mm-hmm. So the creeds actually get something right, which is there are some important central things that matter more than others. And yeah. we're going to pick them out and focus on them. So I like that general principle.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that, too. Okay, so uh, since we're, we're like blowing through our time here because I'm enjoying this conversation so much, let's kind of big picture some stuff. I'm curious to know from, from you, what do you feel like the best evidence is for a historical resurrection?
1: Okay, so we're going to have to go back to my most recent book. And so what I did is I played devil's advocate. And I said that... If you want to be a skeptic and you want to disbelieve, there is a scenario which makes sense and will make sense to you. And we don't need to outline it here, but it involves uh, uh, stealing bodies from tubes, which is an activity we know happens, right? So if I were a skeptic, I wouldn't say the story of the empty tomb is a legend. I'd say it's historical and the body was stolen by thieves and Mary Magdalene found it. And then she and maybe some others had what you would call bereavement visions and bereavement visions are all hallucinatory and you'd get it started that way. Okay. But I also said that the details of this story have no precise parallel to me uh, not just in antiquity, but across time. And so to, to to put it in brief, I said, if you want to be a skeptic, you can be a skeptic and keep your mind, your brain. And if you want to believe this, you, can, you don't have to leave your brain at the door. You can do this also. But I said, just on plain historical grounds, you're not going to be taught which way to go on this. I think that the historical data has to be configured within a worldview which involves all sorts of things that history can't give you. It has to do with whether you have any reason to believe in a God or a son of God, whether you think uh, that miracles or strange events are possible. It depends on all sorts of things. So this is an anti-apologetical move. Apologetics is here we have history And on history, we could build our foundation and then we can construct Christianity on the basis of this. That's Mm. not how I see Mm. it. I see Christianity as uh, a worldview, a language of discourse, and the resurrection is part of that. And the meaning of it and the reality of it are construed in terms from this larger worldview. So I'm not a foundationalist with regard to the resurrection. Hmm. So that's how I think I would respond to to your question. Um, I don't think history can give you what you want or need if you're looking for a worldview. There are so many more things that go into that. And it's your worldview that's actually going to interpret the historical data for you or tell you what you should think rather than the other way
0: around. Sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with that. At the same time, I think, for instance, if you had said, and if other scholars had said, um, you know, in a Jewish worldview, first century Jewish worldview, it would be perfectly consistent to say, for people to say, for Jesus' followers to say, he rose from the dead and mean that in a metaphorical sense.
1: You know. Okay, so I, I don't see any evidence for Jews using resurrection that way with stories like Mark 16 or John 21 or John 20. I don't see that. So maybe resurrection in Ezekiel 37 is a metaphor for natural restoration. Mm-hmm. But that passage is also given a very literal understanding later on by Jews And I think the view that you have in the Talmud, which is that resurrection involves bones and the amount of olives splitting in half and bodies coming out and so on. I think there was a lot of literalism uh, back then. So that's my own historical uh, take on this. But but going back to what I was trying to say earlier and worldview, you have to think of this. If you're a modern apologist, and you're trying to show Jesus rose from the dead or that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's very different than Peter in Acts 2 and 3. In Acts 2 and 3, Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience. They believe in God, mm-hmm. they believe in miracles, mm-hmm. they believe in a Messiah or Messianic Son of David. They, they believe in a resurrection of the dead. They already have these categories, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it possible to speak like this. If you have none of those categories and you have the same historical facts, they're not going to be construed the same way.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So I guess my point is if you say, if we, if we look at the evidence and we say, we don't really think that the, fr- the early followers believed in a literal resurrection. That would not, that wouldn't pr- disprove a literal resurrection, but it's pretty damning. I think it, it, but,
1: but I don't and, think they
0: did. No, and that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you had gone through and said all those things and you, and like, if it makes it incredibly uphill battle to believe in a literal resurrection, then we could follow, we could follow that. Right. Um, but it's, I think the word that keeps coming to mind is plausibility that, and what you said, we don't have to check our brains in the door to believe in the resurrection. And that's all my faith needs is to to get that far to not say, no, this is preposterous. And I don't, and I love one of the habits you have is to put yourself in the frame, in the frame of mind of the skeptic. And I don't blame skeptics one bit for saying, for starting backwards, for going, well, what we know is people don't raise from the dead. So then let's construct that narrative that gets us to fit these facts that would, would work. I don't blame them at all for doing that. That's perfectly reasonable, I think.
1: Yeah, the other thing you have to think about is that people who are trying to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, want him to have risen from the dead and want this to vindicate their religion. And often it's the case who that people who are taking the time to construct arguments against Jesus rising from the dead have their own agenda and often it's very understandable people who were raised in fundamentalist churches that they now hate people uh, who have seen all the bad things (laughs) and damage that religion does all the nonsense that so so I'm a religious person but I'm perfectly willing to observe the obvious that religion is not always and everywhere good for people it hasn't been there are horrible things associated with the history of Christianity there are things about current Christianity that make me cringe and so on and so on and so on. So I understand somebody who says, heck, I don't want this guy to rise from the dead. That'd be terrible.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the time that we have left, tell me a little bit about uh, encountering mystery. So my understanding is you you cataloged all these kind of mystical uh, events and Work them out, t- uh, you know. Dis- discuss them, and yeah, some uh-huh. some uh, fit into a perhaps traditional ch- Christian worldview, and some don't.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm doing three things in this book. First of all, this is not a cutting edge academic treatise. I think of it as sort of journalism. So, if you go through the right sources, do the right sort of research, you realize that many things you think of as rare are really common, Mm -hmm. really common. It's just that we have a sort of censorship within society and within churches that don't allow people to to speak up. So in this book, uh, I report on how common it is for people to run into ostensibly evil spirits or wicked forces or satanic uh, oppressive powers and, and so on. Secular people people who have no religious uh, inclinations at all. I also show how common mystical transcendent experiences are, how common it is for people to run into some force or to think they've run into some force that is loving and compassionate and overwhelming and they end up thinking that's what reality is all about, right? Right. I've also, anyway, I've looked at experiences surrounding deathbeds, not just near death experiences, but visions of deathbeds and so on. So what I'm doing here is just say, look at these experiences. When you look into them, they are everywhere. People are having them, whether they're religious or not, whether they fit into a theological program or not. That's the first thing the book does. Second thing the book does is it tries to argue that if you are otherwise a normal person, and you have a vision or think you've seen an angel or what whatnot, that's no reason to be pathologized. That is, people who no. are other, other otherwise normal, if they have extraordinary experiences, that's no reason to say something wrong with you. Okay, so I am very personally involved in this. I've had visions. Every member of my immediate family has had visions. They've been really important and meaningful to us. We're highly educated, rational people, and we're not mentally ill. There's not anything wrong with us, all right? So people need to recognize not only that certain things happen way more often than they think, but they're not indicative of psychological pathology. The third thing I do in this book is argue that some of these experiences may well push back against the sort of reductive materialistic framework. Some of them do. So those are the three things I'm trying to do in this book. And it does um, take me to territory I've not been in before. And I wouldn't have written it 30 years ago. I wouldn't have written it 20 years ago. I wouldn't have written it 15 years ago. But I'm at the end of my career, I no longer care what people think, so I can be honest. And so this book is a sort of, okay, this is what I've really thought all along, but I wanted to get promotion and tenure and have the respect of people in the field. Now I don't care if I get respected or not. I've already made my contributions, you know, to my field. So here's what I really think.
0: You're the you're the Trojan horse of Princeton, is what I'm hearing.
1: Well, I don't know about that. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious.
1: Uh, no, I, but I do. I do have a, um, I do have a strange worldview, and it's a it, it exists apart from my Christian theology. In other words, I personally think maybe I'm wrong. I need to be humble. I personally think that apart from Christianity, the Bible, my theological tradition, people sometimes see the future. I think clairvoyance is real. I think some visions are. I, Ex- they're, they're not just internally generated. They're not just hallucinations. Sure, I think there's something really interesting going on with many near-death experiences and so on. So I have a, a strange worldview which exists apart from my Christian orientation. And my approach in this book is just to be empirical and to say, look at what's happening to people, not just in Christian circles, where, this is also cross-temporal. That is, I'm looking at experiences that you can document down through the centuries in different places and saying, what do we make of them? Yeah. You
0: know, I, I, I there's part of me that really loves that stuff and honestly kind of feels like Christians should be the ones kind of more investigating that stuff. Um, because I, I feel like, Oh, there's been too much, uh, there's been too much of a myopic view within Christianity. And for instance, you know, a lot of times when people see their dead relatives, a lot of times in conservative Christianity, the go-to move is, uh, no, that can't happen because they're either in heaven or hell. And, and so that must've been demonic. And I just, I don't know that that move is necessary. I don't know. And uh. I think that sometimes, <laughs> look, I love and appreciate Christian theology, but a lot of times what Christian theology does is it says, okay, from scripture, we're given this one puzzle piece and and that's all that scripture gives us. And what Christian theology often does is it says, okay, here's the puzzle piece. Here's what that <clears throat> next puzzle piece that would go into that puzzle piece should look like to fit into it. And that's that's fine but often we become way too dogmatic about that part of it and i just i just find that unnecessary now and and i also feel like okay if we're if we're christians if we believe in uh good and evil and if there's a some kind of spiritual demonic realm i I feel like the test of that would be okay when you saw that loved one did it bring damage and destruction into your life Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Did that apparition tell you to hurt yourself or something like that? Or did it bring you comfort? Did you feel love yeah. from that? I don't, I don't have a way to make uh, Satan an arbiter of bringing love and comfort into someone's life.
1: No. Uh, so I understand that argument and I agree with it, but I would go further. You said it's unnecessary to invoke demonic explanation for certain things. I think it's often terrible not just unnecessary but terrible and you can invoke Satan for anything you disagree with anything you hate and you can't confirm the argument it's just a unverifiable assertion right so this is one of those things Karl Popper uh, it, it speaks to you know, what is what good is this empty assertion for which there is no evidence pro or con it's just your, your assertion it's demonic because I don't like it. That's not an argument. Yes. But uh, you are right about evangelical Protestants in that if you look at opinion polls, they are the group that report the fewest paranormal, mm-hmm. uh, unusual, strange experiences. And I am certain it's not a reflection of their experience. It's a reflection of what they feel comfortable to report. So right after the Reformation, Protestants decided that when you were dead, you were in heaven or hell. So Protestants didn't know what to do with ghosts, right? Roman Catholics could say, oh, well, that's so, so-and-so in purgatory. We can, we can fit ghosts into our, our scheme. But Protestants said, you can't see ghosts anymore. So the Protestants said, "If you see a ghost, it's either a demon, or you're hallucinating. There's something wrong with you." So lo and behold, Protestants start reporting a lot fewer ghost stories <laughs> because who wants to say I'm possessed by a demon or hallucinating? I'm a heretic. Right? Yeah, but Roman Catholics they can still report these. I've, I've run across old sermons within the, you know the first few decades of the Reformation where. Promised and say, hey, nobody in our neck of the woods sees ghosts anymore. I know better. They're still saying ghosts. They're not reporting them. That's what's going on.
0: I find all of that so fascinating. You tell a story in the book or you recount a like a study that that some group did where they were going to people who had lost loved ones and saying, Did you have you seen them? Have you, oh, have yeah. you had the apparition? And like only like one out of, I don't know, hundred said yes, and they were they were kind of confused. And so they go back and they say, you know, a perfectly reasonable person can have the, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It yeah. doesn't mean, you know, and then all of a sudden they're like, okay. And then there's all these other stu- other experiences all of a sudden.
1: So that, that particular study, 2% of the people involved said, yes, I've been in contact with my dead spouse. After they went back and said, this doesn't mean you're mentally ill and so on. And so it went to 50%. So that's just, A terribly revealing fact about modern life and what we know about the world. If you phrase questions in the right way or convince people that you're Mm open-minded, you get the stories. If they think you're not open-minded, you do not get the stories. So I get lots of stories. Other people don't get any stories.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so fascinating. I, I love it. I love it. Okay, well... Dr. Allison, this has been such a treat for me. Thank you for your work, your scholarship. I have to say, the research you did for the resurrection of Jesus is mind-boggling because every page is like a third citations. You really get your page count up that way.
1: (laughs) Well, I wasn't trying to get my page. I
0: know. I know. Uh, I'm giving you uh, a hard time, but it was impressive.
1: it's It's just that this topic has fascinated me for so long. So I've tried to read as much as I can. That's it. I'm actually unhappy with the book because the, the print's too small. I don't like it. Oh, I wish they'd made the book longer, but then it would cost more. And that's what the publishers are all about. They can charge more then. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not in charge of that part of the business. <laughs> I write the book and then it's out of my hands.
0: Well, Dr. Allison, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for <laughs> joining me. Thanks. I enjoyed speaking with you. That's all for today, friends. I hope you found something helpful. Remember to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. You can support Seminary Dropout by going to supportseminarydropout.com. Remember, all past episodes, 200 plus of them, can be found at seminarydropout.com. You can find me on almost all social media channels. My handle is That Shane B.
1: All right, friends. We'll see you next time.